You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. It's Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. Halftime of the show today. I'm going to do the old pop quiz, Hotshot. Are you a fan of Speed, the movie? Did you like that movie back in the day? I did. Very much so. Pop quiz, Hotshot. Your player signs an offer sheet with the Carolina Hurricanes. One year. $6.1 million. What do you do, Mark Bergevin? What do you do? Jamie, if you're Mark Bergevin, I know you don't have to make the decision today. I know you can use your time, and I know you would to steal a line from Friedman, who we're going to hear in just one second here. Hey, if you've got time, use it. And I'm sure you would do just that, Jamie. If you had to make the decision today, would you match if you're Montreal? I'm leaning towards no, I would not match. I would take the picks. I would wish, yes, Barry Kotkaniemi all the best and say, go do your thing in Carolina. We'll take the draft compensation and see if we can do better using those as assets to potentially look elsewhere. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I think they're probably leaning that way. They're in a pickle if they sign him. Now, the time they get to use... They can figure out what they would do with the assets they get back should they walk away from this offer sheet. Or they can try to figure out how to move other things off their roster in the case that they want to keep Jesperi Kakanyemi. Because they're going to have to do one of the two things. There's no chance, no chance whatsoever, that Montreal walks from the offer sheet and just walks into the season with their current roster and doesn't use the capital they get back should Kakanyemi end up in Carolina. And, and not use that capital to go get something else. There's no chance that happens. No, exactly. You're right. They're immediately going to turn around and try to try to add something to the roster for this season. Marcus and Gibson's chimes in, and you can too, 650-650-960-960. Canadians don't sign KK. They don't make the playoffs, says Marcus and Gibson's. I disagree with that because we don't know what the final roster looks like. Right. They could they could go out and add something still using that extra cap space, using those extra uh, draft picks that, that could actually help their team more than Kakanyemi could. And you can be of this opinion or not, but it's at least out there right now. Eric Engels wrote it. Friedman talked about it, and you'll hear it right now. Christian Dvorak is a hot name out there. If the Habs do not bring Kakanyemi back, if they say, okay, we don't like it, but we'll live with it. Do they use the first that they acquire from Carolina or their own first, depending on how they think they're going to do? Multiple picks, you name it. Do they go out and get Christian Dvorak out of Arizona? Here's Elliot Friedman this morning on 590 speaking to that. I do think one guy they're going to take a long look at is going to be Christian Dvorak from Arizona. Um, you know, Dvorak's an interesting player. Like, I think he's a really good player. He doesn't get a lot of attention, but I, I think he's a really good player. And the other thing about Dvorak is he's signed for four more years at four and a half million. Like, you know, like all of a sudden, if you're Montreal, you've got Kakanyemi at 6.1 this year. And, you know, some people pointed out that Montreal could take him to something called cut rate arbitration next year, where where you can make the argue for the salary to be at 85% of the current deal. Well, even if you do that, it's just it's almost five point two million. So you know that from here on in with Kakanyemi, even if you negotiate even if you go to cut rate arbitration or you negotiate a long term extension with him, it's probably around five million dollars now. He's and Montreal with during this whole situation, 
they were negotiating with him at I think just under two point five million. That's what they were looking at. So I think I think Montreal Justin is gonna take these picks and they're gonna look around the league and they're gonna see what they can do. And I think part of this process before they make their decision is is there somebody, whether it's Dvorak or someone else, that they can get in a vacuum this season, Jamie, is Montreal better positioned to make the playoffs with Kakanyemi in the middle or Christian Dvorak in the middle? I'd go with Christian Dvorak. And he's not the you know highest profile, sexiest name out there, but he's been more productive in recent years than Jesperi Kakanyemi. And again, doesn't maybe doesn't have the same ceiling as a player like Kakanyemi, of course, a former third overall pick. But if you're looking at just this year and then also the salary certainty that he brings with him, yeah, Christian Dvorak probably does help them more this year. Yeah, he probably does in the here and now. This is obviously a conversation about the future because your Sperry Kakinyemi is so young. They acquired him via the third overall selection in the draft, and this is about what happens beyond this season as well. So it's not quite as simple as I made it out there and posing that question to you. But Carolina's banking on that too. And Friedman laid out, look, if you're going to get an extension done, what does that extension have in front of it? What's the number? Right now they're talking about a a sub $3 million deal, which is exactly why Esperi Kakanyemi signed this and said, yeah, how quickly can I get the, the yeah. ink to dry on this sucker? Like, you're going <laughs> to give me $6.1 million. I know what the implications of that are. I know I cash in now. And if you're Carolina, let's say that extension doesn't have a five in front of it. What if it has a four in front of it because they have talked to the agent and said, here's the deal. We're going to give him 6.1 for a year. The next number is going to be lower but think of this as a signing bonus, and think of this, let's say the next pact was five years. Let's think of this as a six-year deal and roll that all together because that's the way we're thinking about this. Yeah, and that, if if Carolina is willing to do that, willing to go long-term with Kanyemi, even despite the questions about his ultimate ceiling, then it makes sense for them. And, you know, we were talking off the top of the segment, Scotty, about what would we do, and I said, yeah, I'm leaning towards letting them walk and taking the compensation I think another part of that is, you know, we're always looking to Tampa Bay for lessons about how to build a team. And I think one of the major lessons from Tampa Bay is know when to cut bait on your prospects, right? Don't stay married to your prospects just because of where you took them in the draft. And I think it's actually kind of a similar situation to a guy who's on the Canadians now in Jonathan Druin, right? He was the third overall pick for Tampa Bay, played three years there with them. And then they decided to move on. They said, you know what? We're not saying he's a bust, but we don't like where this is going. We need to make a move. And they got Mikhail Sergachev instead. You know, Druin was more productive early in his career, his NHL career, than Kakinyemi has been so far. But I think there's some similarities there, right? Where, okay, sure, you're always going to come back to, hey, we drafted this guy number three overall. You know, we've got a lot of time invested in him. We really want him to turn out. But if Kakinyemi, like, let's say you match, right, and you're paying him $6.1 million, and that brings all of the complications with qualifying offers and the potential for him to go to UFA that it does, if he doesn't take a major leap forward this year, I mean, what's his value around the NHL? Because all of a sudden you've got a player who's not living up to expectations whose contract makes him very, very difficult. You know, this might be the best offer that they're going to get for Kakanyemi, right, is a first and a third round draft pick. And just from that standpoint, if you are not really, really certain that he's going to come a lot closer to reaching his ceiling than he has done already, I don't see how you can end up matching this. And what does that ceiling look like? Does that ceiling look like, I don't know, Bo Horvat? Is that the ceiling? Is that too high of a ceiling? Remember when Horvat signed his contract? There were a lot of people in the Vancouver Canucks fan base who reacted 
poorly to that. Overpay. Now it looks like one yep. of the better value contracts around the entire National Hockey League. Yeah, it's paid off for them big time. I, I think, given what he's done so far, but that's a very high bar to set for Kakanyemi, right, to get to the Bo Horvat level of production. It doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm just not sure I'd want to be the team making that bet. I would let Carolina make that bet rather than making it myself. Alistair in Clearwater, take the picks, says Alistair. With no Hamilton, an injury-prone tandem of Antiranta and Freddie Anderson, Carolina isn't exactly a playoff lock. Man, they have been interesting, and I mentioned this before. They're still one of the most interesting teams in the National Hockey League. I've said that about Carolina for, I want to say, three seasons now because they do things unconventionally, whether it's something as simple that took on a life of its own like Storm Surge or whether it's something like this. Carolina is really interesting. Their gamble in goal that Alistair references right there with Anderson and Ranta is extremely compelling. I don't know if it's going to pay off or not, but they're betting on it. This is a team that went out and signed Tony D'Angelo, which most teams in the National Hockey League wanted nothing to do with, and that might downgrade Carolina, in your opinion, from an ethical point of view, but they're doing things that most teams won't do. Yeah, they're doing things a lot of teams wouldn't even consider, right? And again, whether that's you know a questionable signing like Tony D'Angelo or unconventional decisions in the crease, I think the texter makes a great point, though, about, you know, everyone hears, oh, you're getting a first-round pick from Carolina. Oh, what, what? that's going to be, you know, 24th overall, 25th. you got to downgrade it a little bit. But it's a good point that the texter makes. You know, the Metropolitan Division, I think, is going to be really, really tough again, right? You've got the Islanders, the Penguins, the Capitals, who you know you're going to be in the running. The Rangers and the Flyers could potentially be in the running. And then you just look at the wildcard spots, and again, the Atlantic is pretty well set up as well with the Bruins, the Panthers, the Leafs, the Lightning, the Habs want to be in that mix. So I don't, I, I don't think you can just say, oh, yeah, Carolina's a lock for the playoffs. This is going to be a garbage pick. I wouldn't necessarily bet on it, but there's a good chance that you know it comes a lot higher in the draft than people might expect. Keep those texts coming in, 650-650-960-960. We'll dive into this more. Andrew Berkshire is going to join us here at the Montreal Gazette. That will be at the bottom of this hour. I wanted to talk a little bit of football here, but before I do, we got this text, and it was from someone who's a little hell-bent on talking about the big fight on the weekend. Did you consume any of the fight? Did you watch highlights? Jake Paul, Tyrone Woodley, where were you at with that, Jamie? No, I'm not into it. I saw, you know, the few clips that were going around on Twitter, you know, when uh, when Woodley landed a good blow on Jake Paul and sat him down, but I didn't really see much of it beyond that. It has very pretty much zero zero interest for me. So I had a very brief conversation this morning with someone who said like these guys have ruined boxing. The Paul brothers are ruining boxing. And I said you might actually make the opposite case. Whether you like them or not, more people are paying attention to boxing. And maybe it's not the pure art form that, that we grew up with, Jamie, and, and the prize fights we talked about from back in the day that that generation of, of fight fans really enjoyed. But I will say this, boxing from a, a promotional standpoint had fallen on its face in the last couple of decades. I didn't consume it either. I will say this. There seems to be a lot more interest in this than there has been in traditional boxing in recent years. Yeah, than there are in most boxing matches. That's true. It's absolutely true. And so you understand why, I mean, 
you know, it's it's never been that hard to get uh, boxing promoters and boxing promotions to go on with whatever uh, harebrained scheme you have to make some money. But you understand why everyone is going along with it because it is getting the attention and it is getting people to pony up and pay, and put down their money for the pay per views. Can the sport benefit? The sport itself benefit from what many consider a sideshow with the Paul brothers. It can. I think you have to be very, very careful that you don't turn the entire sport into a sideshow. But there's got to be a way to leverage some of the extra interest you're getting into actual, legitimate, compelling, entertaining boxing rather than these kind of novelty sideshow fights. I don't know exactly what the best way to do it, what the easiest way to do it is, but you have to think there's a way to do it. If you want in on the MMA slash boxing conversation, where we're at with combat sports, your level of interest, you can get it anytime, 960-960-650-650. I do want to move to the National Football League, though, before the end of this segment. We haven't had a chance to touch on it. Preseason is wrapped now. You're seeing teams make cuts here throughout the day. Brashad Perryman is probably the most notable cut that I've seen go down this morning. He was a guy signed by the Detroit Lions. I think they thought he could be pretty decent. Some thought... WR1 in Detroit this yep. year for Jared Goff, and he had a, an extremely disappointing camp, an extremely disappointing preseason, and he is out, flat out released by the Lions. And, I mean, I think that says more about the Detroit Lions receiving core, that he was potentially in the running for wide receiver one than it does necessarily about Brashad Perryman, but a big blow to him, for sure, at, at this point in his career, to find himself getting cut at this stage. Well, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be looking at fantasy projections this week, and some of those fantasy hopes took a big blow on the weekend. J.K. Dobbins is a pretty big name in the running back community. The young up-and-comer who was supposed to be the lead back in Baltimore Tough blow for him. Torn ACL, done for the season. Second young running back in the past week, Jamie, to go on to the shelf. Travis Etchen had the foot injury. It doesn't look like he's going to play for the Jaguars this season either. Yeah, and you're right. It's it's a really tough blow, obviously, for J.K. Dobbins. I do wonder if this is the kind of thing that ends up being more fantasy impactful than impactful in the NFL standings, right? And that's not to take any, anything away from J.K. Dobbins. He was going to be their lead back for a reason, but I'm also pretty confident that with Lamar Jackson taking snaps and with that coaching staff in Baltimore, they can still figure out a way to put out a really productive running attack. And, you know, Gus Edwards, not the most dynamic guy, doesn't necessarily excite you that much. But they do have some other guys down the depth chart who, you know, with the right opportunity, could step up and play a big role. So, yeah, from a fantasy perspective, it's a big deal. It hurts. Obviously, they'd prefer to have J.K. Dobbins back there being the lead back. But I also have a lot of confidence that the Ravens can overcome that injury. Gus Edwards, you're right. Productive, but not explosive. And that's what no. Dobbins brought to that lineup. And he had looked until this point to be very durable. And you lose an element of explosiveness. And if you don't have explosion in your offense, it's tough to succeed in today's NFL. This is more about the accumulation of injury right now in Baltimore. It's not just that Dobbins is down. Yeah. Rashad Bateman is out. They've got Hollywood Brown down. Like They've lost some players here. And you just wonder... When the season rolls around, are they going to have enough playmakers in an offense that needed to open it up more that they can be productive and grind out wins early before everybody gets healthy? Well, yeah, an offense that, as you said, needed more playmakers, needed more guys, certainly at receiver, certainly catching passes for Lamar Jackson to work with. I mean, that's why they went out and signed Sammy Watkins. You know, he's not exactly the most durable player in the NFL. There's always questions about his health. And, yeah, now with J.K. Dobbins out – 
it's a great point. How long is it until, or, or is it going to be inevitable that all of a sudden we look around and say, man, who is Lamar Jackson thrown to this week? Because there's just not, if everyone's on the shelf, it doesn't matter if they made all of these additions. A lot of rumors out there this weekend about Deshaun Watson, whether he'd be on the move, whether he wouldn't. Apparently he said, no, I would not go to Philadelphia. Gardner Minshew didn't seem to have that problem. Not nope. that he had trade protection anyway. That's a pretty interesting move over the weekend. People are wondering what happens with Deshaun Watson, whether he's even playing in the NFL this year because of the legal issues that he has right now, which are far more serious. Gardner Minshew, under the radar, interesting move over the weekend by the Eagles. It's a very interesting move. I think it's interesting from Jacksonville's perspective as well, right? Because, you know, you spent all of training camp pretending that there was this quarterback battle, pretending that you might give Gardner Minshew the start in week one, and then you turn around and say, actually, you know, we're willing to trade him for a six-round pick. So, well, okay, why on earth were you giving him first-team re- first reps instead of giving them to Trevor Lawrence throughout training camp? But that's a different discussion. It does certainly speak to the fact that in Philadelphia, there's at least some uncertainty about Jalen Hurts, right? That they are not willing to say, this is Jalen Hurts' team. He's going to be our quarterback of the future. I think the upside with Jalen Hurts is really, really exciting. But I also understand if there's a guy like Gardner Minshew who can give you a lot of insurance and be you know, among the best backups in the league, a guy that you can have total confidence in throwing into a starter's position if you need to be, if he's available very, very cheaply and you have any questions about your young starting quarterback, I don't mind the move. Give a little extra comp- competition for Jalen Hurts and provide a little security for you as well. Jalen Hurts was a fantasy darling when he played last year, but he certainly wasn't accurate. There were questions about the passing, and I don't mind that competition there either nobody's expecting much out of Philadelphia this year, so it is probably a year of evaluation for both of these pivots. Likely they both see some time over the course of the season, at least I would think so. We know Trevor Lawrence is going to start. We know Zach Wilson's going to start. People want Justin Fields to start in Chicago, but he's probably not going to start to begin the season. It'll be Andy Dalton week one, and we'll see where it goes from there. So of the other two first-rounders, which is in a more intriguing situation to you over the next couple of weeks? Is it Mac Jones in that battle with Cam Newton in New England? Is it Trey Lance and what's going on with he and Jimmy Garoppolo in San Francisco? Well, I think it's it's Trey Lance just because the overall situation in San Francisco, there's more talent and both of the quarterbacks are more talented as well, right? Like I would rather have Jimmy G than Cam Newton at this point, and I would definitely rather have Trey Lance over Mac Jones. So it's just, it's whenever, you know, you have this competition that's just between two pretty talented quarterbacks, right? Like Jimmy G is not a lame duck like Andy Dalton. He, you know, he has low, low lower ceiling as a quarterback than a guy like Trey Lance, but you also know you can win with him. You can go deep in the playoffs with Jimmy Garoppolo. That puts him in a different category than a guy like Andy Dalton. And I also just think, you know, no matter what happens with the quarterback battle in New England, I'm not sure that changes how I look at the Patriots much differently, right? They're in a really tough division. I don't see them as contenders or or as playing their way into being contenders. In San Francisco, you know, if Trey Lance comes in and really impresses as a rookie, that could change what you think about them. Or if Jimmy Garoppolo performs exceptionally well because he's trying to fend off a challenge from Trey Lance, San Francisco might be legitimate contenders in the NFC. So I just think the competition is higher. The talent is higher. The stakes are higher in San Francisco than in New England. You're undervaluing the talent in New England this year. I'm not saying they're the Patriots of the past. They, to me, are better talent-wise than you made them out. The amount, the amount of guys they get back from opting out COVID-wise, defensive injuries from last season, they should be much more stout on that side of the ball. And they made some moves. They made some moves to give themselves flexibility with that offense this year. 
I believe Cam Newton will take the opening snap. I don't know how long he lasts there, though. We'll see. We'll see how it, it obviously has to do with winning. They win games, and they win them in a way that Bill Belichick feels is reasonable in the early going. Newton will continue taking stat, snaps, in my opinion. But Mac Jones is further ahead than I thought he was going to be. Yeah, he's further ahead than a lot of people, certainly myself, right? You know, you looked at it. Going into training camp, it was kind of, will we even see Mac Jones at all this year? Does he have a chance to play in year one? Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about, can he win the starting job at a training camp, which is certainly not a conversation I was expecting to be having. I asked you about San Francisco because, you know, that's the team that is most compelling to me. Always, I happen to be a San Francisco 49ers fan, so I was always going to answer with that. But what they did yesterday, boy, could it spice up quarterback usage early in the season. I don't know how many people caught that preseason game or read about it, they alternated the quarterbacks, basically, within series. It wasn't, okay, yep. Jimmy G, you go take the first series. Trey Lance, you come in, take the next. No, no. Their first drive was a 10-play touchdown drive where they would bring in Garoppolo for two plays. Lance would come in for a play. Then Garoppolo would come back. Lance for two plays. They went like that down the field, Jamie, and it ended up being Garoppolo running in a one-yard score. They both played five plays on that 10-play opening drive, and it continued for the next couple where they were going with both quarterbacks in the same series. It was really fascinating, and it's you know something we've always heard throughout training camp, even after the draft, right after the draft, was, okay, Trey Lance might not start away, but he's start right away, but he's going to get on the field. They are going to find ways to use him. I don't think anyone necessarily thought it would look exactly like that, like what we saw yesterday, where he was on the field with that frequency as part of a, a quarterback tandem. I don't know if we'll see that in the regular season, but I think it was a really smart move by Kyle Shanahan, and I believe he even alluded to this after the game. You know, basically now their early season opponents have to at least prepare for that possibility, right? And even if he doesn't go that extreme into a tandem situation in week one or week two, it's still going to be in the back of the minds of the teams they're playing. Like, hey, do we have to we, we have to prepare for both Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance because there's a chance we could see them both on the field for substantial chunks of the game. Going to have to bite their kneecaps to win that game. That's what they play in week one. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the debut. I mean, that's not easy to get ready for if you're Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions. Kyle Shanahan, the multiple looks he gives you with his offense on the worst of days, and now you yep. might have even more because who knows what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to do. And we saw even through the draft process, Jamie, the San Francisco 49ers for a very long time have been very willing to let people believe what they want and then do what they're going to do. Yeah, they absolutely have, right? Well, it was Everyone thought they might trade up to take, who was it, Mac Jones, right? That that rumor was out there for a while, and then finally it was actually Trey Lance. But you're right, they, they're good at putting up smoke screens. They're good at getting a certain narrative built out there. And who knows, maybe in week one we see Trey Lance take, you know, two snaps, and it's Jimmy G the rest of the time. But still, it will have been effective to do this in preseason because you're forcing the other teams to react to the possibility. Lots going on in the National Football League. We don't have time to fit it all in here, but throughout the course of the week, obviously we're going to get you teed up for the NFL season. More football, bring it on. I am totally down with that. What happens in Montreal? What is the current reaction? What does Andrew Berkshire think Mark Bergevin does over the course of the next five days? Find out next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. It's been a strange offseason. For hockey, which is a good thing, Jamie. Obviously, we're not going to go as deep into the calendar most years as we did this year, but it's made everything compact, and all of a sudden you look yep. at the calendar. I know I certainly have, and 
and I've gone, oh, like training camp is seemingly tomorrow. Yep. And the, everything has yeah. happened in, in quick, pretty quick order. Like it's been expedited so quickly, but that has kept interest very, very high. Well, the dog days, you know, the traditional dog days of, of NHL summer, right, where everything gets wrapped up within a few days of July 1st, and then everyone goes on vacation, and there's, you know, only just the, the, the barest crumbs of news for the next six or seven weeks. It really hasn't existed that year, right, with the with the draft and free agency so late in July. I mean, and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the calendar is turning to September, and we're going to see NHL players get back to their Home cities, get on the ice for training camp. That's going to start really, really soon here. It just It has not felt nearly as long and painful for hockey fans as it sometimes does. And that's been an underreported part of the Jesperi Kakanyemi story to me. Obviously, the money is what you would leap at if you're him, as we try to put ourselves in his skates, if you will. Hey, $6.1 million, and I was talking about $3 million bucks or $2.5 million. But yeah, I'll, I'll take the six point one. The other part of this he gets some finality pretty quick as to knowing where he's going to yep. go. This isn't going to drag into training camp. He's not going to be an early season holdout. One way or another, he's going to be in somebody's camp. He's going to be lacing him up with a new team or he's going to be back with his old one and he's going to have deal in pocket. And he can start preparing, right? As you say, there's a certainty. There's a finality to it, right? Where you don't have to wonder, are they going to finally budge? Are they going to make me an offer? What's going on here? You know, you're checking with your agent all the time. It can really hang over a player, right? And just think about anybody in your own life, how much that uncertainty in your career would potentially hang over you. So, yeah, it's a good point. From the player's perspective, hey, not only do I get $6.1 million this year, but I get to just know what's happening. I get some certainty. That's a big bonus. Let's head to Montreal now. Andrew Berkshire works for the Montreal Gazette. He joins us this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Thank you very much for doing this today, Andrew. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm doing great. Are you guys doing well? We are doing very well, and thank you, Carolina, and thank you, Montreal. Two of the most interesting teams always in the National Hockey League have given us a lot to talk about, and there are so many layers to this offer sheet. It's great. But let's rewind a little bit, and let's go through the history with the player who was drafted third overall by Montreal. How did we get to this point with the Asperi Kakanyemi and the Montreal Canadiens? Well, I, I think it all started with his sophomore slump in the second year and get, being sent down to the American Hockey League. And the Canadiens kind of have their own idea of what they wanted Kakanyemi to become. And they want him to be more of a physical net front guy, take advantage of his big frame, which is understandable, but he sees himself as more of a playmaker. And when he went down to the American Hockey League and worked with Joel Bouchard, he added that physicality to his game, but he also was allowed to be the player that he sees himself as. And if you look at this, just absolutely piled on the assists. He was an excellent playmaker down there, really meshed with uh, the American Hockey League forwards he was playing with to, to get the puck into the net for him. And then he came up to the... NHL again, and they were like, okay, net front guy, you're not a playmaker. So, And it's kind of been this whole yo-yoing around of his career where they're like, oh, this guy, no, be this guy, no, be this guy. And so there's frustration from that point, and then you get to the, the playoffs last year and this year, and he's actually putting the puck into that relatively frequently, not necessarily playing with goal scorers, which is something he hasn't done at any point, really, uh, in the NHL. He's played, he played a little bit with uh, Tyler Toffoli this year, but 120 or 150 minutes, which is not a lot. He was actually his most common linemate. He was bounced around constantly. But uh, the guys that he played with in the playoffs, Josh Anderson 
and Paul Byron are both very individual offensive contributors. They don't pass well. They don't play on the cycle. They don't uh, control four checks very well. They attack straight line off the rush and create their own chances. So Kokaniemi, who is more of a give-and-go guy and has some skating issues that prevent him from being really fast bursts like those two players are, isn't part of their rushes really and wasn't getting passes from them because neither of them can really pass. So like he can't do the goal scoring that they want him to do. And he can't do the playmaking that he wants to do because neither of those guys are big trigger men. So it was just this thing that didn't work. And despite that, he had a really strong playoff. And then the Canadians essentially scratched him in the Stanley Cup final in the do or die games. So that's to a young player it sends a bad message, right? It sends like, we don't trust you or we don't think that you're one of our top 12 forwards and we're going to play this guy who hasn't played in over a month instead, which is kind of crazy in an elimination game. So I think that there's uh, no trust between Kokaniemi and the Canadians both ways and a very different approach of like what each of them wants him to become. So I, I think you get to that situation. It shouldn't be surprising that he signed an offer sheet especially one that apparently is about triple the value of what the Canadians were offering him in their contract negotiations, where they were playing hardball on a player that hasn't proved a lot offensively in the NHL, and now they've kind of got caught. This situation didn't have to exist. You know, this is a situation they put themselves in, and they've lost Phil Deneau this offseason, so they're really in a bind. Given where Montreal sits on the salary cap, and given the financial implications of this contract, hey, we know what convention is in the National Hockey League. Is Montreal better off matching, figuring out the finances later, and moving on with the young player they selected third overall? Or are they better off with the assets they would reap in the return? Well, I think that kind of entirely depends on what they can get for the assets that they got in return, right? Because I've seen a lot of people saying that, uh, well, the Canadians are hosting the draft next year, They would love to have another first-round pick and a very deep draft. But the Canadians' roster is built to be competitive over the next few years. You know, this is the last gasp, essentially, for Carey Price, uh, Jeff Petrie. You know, Shea Weber's career is likely done, so he doesn't really factor in here. But they have a lot of guys in their early 30s to late 20s that this is their competitive window, right? So they have to do something now. And a draft pick this year, which is likely to be a mid to late round, first round pick, even in a deep draft, isn't going to impact the roster for two to three years. Two to three years from now, Carey Price is going to be 36, 37. You can't depend on that as being like building towards anything. So unless they're willing to give up on most of the roster that they've built at the NHL level and go into a a rebuild of sorts, they kind of have no choice here. They have to match unless they've got something cooked up where they can trade for Jack Eichel because nobody else who's currently on the market is going to bring enough for them to go forward, right? It will be a huge step back season no matter what because of how much they've lost this off season. But this is just, it, it becomes, it gets to a point now where between the PR disaster of their draft in the first round and now this and losing Deneau and losing Weber, I can't recall a Stanley Cup finalist ever having this bad of a summer. 
And how much does the team's center depth in particular factor into the decision? Because as you mentioned, you know, they lose Philip Deneau in the offseason. Okay, you love Nick Suzuki playing down the middle. But outside of that, if if you don't have Jesperi Kakaniemi in the lineup, all of a sudden you are paper thin at center. How much of that uh, does that factor into their decision to match or not? I mean, it absolutely has to because, like, we talk about uh, cap implications. I don't think the Canadians should be that worried about, like, right now, right? Because Weber's out on LTIR. His cap number's not going to matter. So that easily eats up whatever Kokaniemi is going to make that you thought is too much. And Paul Byron is also on long-term injured reserve to start the season as well. So, like, there's not a big issue cap-wise short-term. I think it's just if you don't think Kokaniemi is going to be worth, like, whatever, 85% of this contract is if you take him to salary arbitration next summer. Like if, if you don't think Kokiemi is going to be worth five and a half million dollars entering year five of his career, then maybe you shouldn't match because that tells everyone that when you thought you were being smarter than every single other team out there and taking him third overall, you made a gigantic mistake because if you're taking somebody third overall and they're not worth five and a half in 2023 or something like, come on, that's, that's, awful <laughs> you got to do better than that as an organization so I, I think you look at their center depth they have no choice here they have to match because they're just crippled without this player this is a guy who should be in line for a breakout season just by virtue of the fact that if he were to be with the montreal canadians he's likely going to spend most of the season with brandon gallagher brandon gallagher is the center whisperer in the nhl he has made careers for guys by just being a ridiculous driver of play, a ridiculous offensive performer. He is one of the best play-driving winner, wingers in the league over the last 10 years. It's incredible how much impact he has. So having a guy like that who also plays a similar style of cycle and forecheck game to Kokaniemi instead of a pure rush game, I think there's a lot to be unlocked there. So it's one of those situations where you might be better off just gritting your teeth and accepting the extra salary and knowing that it's going to be better off this season for Kokaniemi, no matter what. But just based on how I know the organization operates in Montreal, I think even if they do match, there's no way that this player stays with them long-term because they just they can't handle players disrespecting the organization. And despite the fact that any player offered triple what they were being offered by their own team would sign this deal, the Canadians are very old school, and they're going to see this as a big betrayal. You know, you mentioned even if they do decide to match, they're they're going to look to move on from the player in some respect. I totally understand, you know, the logic from the Canadians there. Even though, as you say, you know, look, he, if he gets this offer put in front of him, of course he's going to sign it. But I guess my concern from a, from the franchise perspective there would be. Okay, all of a sudden we're going to be paying this player six point one million, which everyone agrees is more than he's worth right now, and that complicates, you know, your ability to sign him long term because he has this very high qualifying offer he can demand now. There's a potential for him to go to UFA if you don't want to meet that qualifying offer. Does that potentially hurt his value around the league if you're trying to trade him to other teams enough to the point where they say, you know what, if we have him, we're not going to be able to move him for much, so we may as well take the first and the third here. Yeah, it's something that you have to consider because, uh, I mean, the the cap implications do hurt his value. There's no question. I mean, there were rumors earlier on this year that he was going to be, you know, a key piece in an Eichel trade, right? And I don't think that that works anymore at this cap number. You are going to take a hit on it. And it's one of those situations where no matter what the Canadians choose here, they've taken a loss. 
right? If they choose to move on, it hurts them right now. If they choose to match, it hurts them in the next couple of years. So it's really brilliant tactical moves by the Carolina Hurricanes. As much as it was them 100% trolling them, they do actually value this player, and they put the Canadians in a no-win situation. They've completely painted them into a corner. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And at this point, I really don't have any clue what the Canadians intend to do because this whole situation is so unpredictable. I'm with you, Andrew. Andrew Berkshire of the Montreal Gazette joining us here today. I am extremely impressed with the strategy employed here by the Carolina Hurricanes. No matter what you think of the player, I'm impressed with the way they went about this, and I hope we see more of it in the National Hockey League. Yeah, I do too. I would I, not even necessarily the spite of it. You know, I just would like to see more clever offer sheets. And this is something that I've been saying for a long time. The NHL, especially at the executive level, is very much a league of how long can I keep my job? And I'm buddies with everyone. Do you want to win the Stanley Cup or do you want to be buddies? You know, this is something that you can do legally. Why would you not try to screw with your competition and make their job harder? It makes your job easier even if you don't get what you want. You know, it just makes so much sense. Every good player who goes to restricted free agency should be getting offer sheets from someone. The compensation is just, unless you get up way up in salary, it's just not that good. It, like a first and third round pick for a developed, a developed player who was a far first round pick who's got three years in the league is not a lot. And you add a third round to that, like, who cares? Like, that's just not a lot of compensation. And so for the chaos theory, there are some that would like to see Elias Pettersson offer sheeted, but the number you'd have to put in front of him to get his camp to sign it would be astronomical. We get this text, and I understand there's always this fear until a player is signed. Well, what if Montreal turns around and offer sheets Pettersson? They are not in a financial position where they could even do that, are they? Well, they have, if they don't match Kokanemi, they have about $9 million, which I don't think would get it done for Vancouver. They would just eat that and figure out a way to to maneuver like somebody would have to go obviously but they would find a way to match that you'd have to get into four first round picks territory i think before vancouver would even consider not matching and while the canadians don't have that kind of cap flexibility i think for a player of Pedersen's caliber you'd be very willing to make a move to create that cap flexibility and i don't i just don't think the canadians are bold enough to do that i think they proved that with the sebastian aho thing they were trying to get it done with their on the cheap, essentially, and hoping that uh, Tom Dundon would be too cheap to sign that deal didn't work out. I don't believe that the Canadians are bold enough to try to go for Pedersen. If they are, I think it would be a brilliant move, but I, I just can't see it happening. As you mentioned earlier in this interview, Montreal's offseason has not gone great for a team that just went to the Stanley Cup final, and yet it didn't start out that way. Seemed to be some pretty good poker played with the Carey Price reports and putting him out there and the way they did their goaltender protection, and people were pretty happy with the David Savard signing. With moves either through the draft or where we're at now with Kakanyemi, where have the Habs lost the most currency with their own fan base in this offseason? I think it's probably with the Logan Mayhew situation, the, the drafting the player who specifically asked not to be drafted, which I, I still think was a gambit from his agent, essentially saying, like, oh, look, he's matured, but also kind of like you could just draft him, which uh, worked exactly as they intended, in my opinion. 
But, uh, yeah, I think that's the thing that's made people the most angry. And there are some people who are diehards and will never criticize their team no matter what. But a large section of the fan base is still very upset about the way that they've handled that. And then the way that they talked about it afterwards, which is essentially like our organization is so pure, they will make him a good person. And it took, you know, weeks for them to finally come out and release some semblance of a plan, which is still not really good enough. It was more like, oh, well, we're going to push him by not allowing him to come to rookie camp. Who cares? <laughs> that doesn't matter. Europeans rarely come to rookie camp because their season has already started. So, like, you're just treating him as a European hockey player instead. It really is a situation where the Canadians have a history of employing people who have some sketchy off-ice conduct. And I have not seen any evidence whatsoever that this organization is capable of making players better people. So why would they be trusted in this situation to do this for a young kid who clearly needs some help in fixing his own flaws and doesn't deserve it at this point? He needs to make it known that he's working on himself and working on uh, at least apologizing to the girl that he wronged before he deserves any sort of help from any NHL franchise. So the whole situation is mind-boggling that it even got that far. But I think the most surprising thing was how blind to it the Canadians were, that people were so angry about it. Yeah, you're right. The The lack of preparation they seemed to do in advance of making that pick was was pretty shocking. And, you know, I wanted to ask you just in general about the team's outlook in this upcoming season. And obviously with the major caveat that there's a significant amount of uncertainty on the roster right now as we wait to see how the Kakanyemi offer sheet is going to play out. But as you said, it's not as if the offseason has, off has been going swimmingly well for them anyways. And now going back into the Atlantic Division, which has some very tough teams at the top of the division, of the division how do you see Montreal's season potentially playing out in the upcoming year? Well, I thought in assuming that Kokniemi would be back, that there's a snowball's chance that they could get the last spot in the Atlantic, simply because if you look at the Boston Bruins, they've lost a lot as well over the last two years. And when you look at how many players they've lost that are big pieces of the organization, like they also don't have a second-line center. David Krejci is gone, which I think people really underestimate how big of that big a part of that team Krejci is. And the Boston Bruins, when you look outside of that top line, have actually not been very good for the last couple of seasons. So it, it's like, is there a time when Patrice Bergeron finally starts to decline a little bit? Probably not because he's perfect. But they're the team that I expect to kind of fall down. But now with this whole situation, it seems very unlikely to me that they'd be in that that territory just because Boston has so many other things going for it. Uh, that it, it just there's such an uphill climb for the Montreal Canadiens. They did lose like two thirds of their top line as well, which people don't really talk about Thomas Tatar as a big loss because they're so focused on what happened in the playoffs, which was you know weird in its own right. But Thomas Tatar, Philippe Deneau, and Brendan Gallagher, that line has been one of the best even strength lines in the entire NHL for three seasons. You don't lose two thirds of that and walk away unscathed, no matter how good Suzuki is. So it's going to be a really tough year for them. Good, bad, or somewhere in between, it is never boring covering the Montreal Canadiens with Mark Bergevin in charge. Andrew, thank you very much for this. Appreciate your time here today and look forward to having a conversation in the very near future. My pleasure, guys. Happy to be back anytime. That is Andrew Berkshire of the Montreal Gazette joining us and the big story over the weekend that everybody is very well aware of. 
Man, we're going to get a conclusion coming up this weekend, so this is going to be a talking point. If they yep. don't make a decision before Saturday, and again, people pointed this out, and it's it's very correct in doing it. Like, this dropped at 5 o'clock Eastern Saturday afternoon as well. Like, weekend in summer, most of the people who do this for a living are out spending time on their vacation or getting away for the weekend. Nope. Big story. Get back at it. Not the least of which were Jeff Merrick, Elliot Friedman, Emergency Podcast. Well, and did you see uh, Sarah Sivian, of course, covers the Carolina Hurricanes for the Athletic, her, her reporting on Saturday. You know, obviously she reached out to the team hoping to get a comment from Don Waddell, and Don Waddell was unavailable for comment because he was at the rodeo oh, on so Saturday good. night. So signed the offer sheet and then said, you know what, I'm going to go take in some rodeo action on my Saturday night. Oh, very good. It was, yeah, there's so many parts of this that I absolutely love, and we're getting a conclusion one way or other. This isn't those, it's not a hypothetical. Like, we're getting a real conclusion, which yep. I love, and I know everybody wants that to speed up, but for the purpose of more chaos ensuing, it's actually kind of good that we have seven days to chew on this. If Bergevin can get a deal done, does he bring in Dvorak? Is it another target? Where do they go from here? So much speculation is going to ensue over the next few days. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's great for us. It's great for us. As we said, you know, the dog days of summer weren't quite as bad this year, but it's always nice before training camp open, you know, before Labor Day weekend to have a little extra bit of content to chew over for a week here. I imagine the boys in the big show will do just that. They'll talk about the Stamps' last-minute loss as well. Jake Mayer, great start in his second start for the Calgary Stampeders. That's coming up in Calgary next. We'll turn you over to local programming on the eastern side of the Rockies. Here in Vancouver, yeah, the dog days of summer, they still feature a lot of different sports, and one we haven't touched yet, the Vancouver Whitecaps. The timing is extremely curious. We'll get into the dismissal of Mark Dos Santos. Another win for a team that seemingly can't lose in MLS right now. Peter Shad joins us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Final hour of the Monday edition of the program. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd in for Karen Sermon. We'll hope to have her back later this week. If not, it will be next week. Are you a camper, Jamie? A little bit. Not a huge camper, to be honest. I, I don't hate it or anything, but it's not, you know, some people, hey, I've got a weekend, long weekend coming up, and that's the first thing that jumps to mind. Not really the case for me. Did your family camp growing up? A little bit. Not very often, though. So what does that mean? Does that mean you guys would rent a camper? Did you have a trailer? Did you guys throw down with a tent? We did tent camping sometimes, and on a couple occasions we, we rented a, uh, a trailer for, for the car as well. Okay, and enjoyment level for you as a young person growing up and going camping with your family? Like, fine. You know, like, I enjoyed it. It's similar to where I am now, right? Not the greatest thing I've ever done. Not something that I experienced and say, oh, I never want to do that again. Just like, okay, yeah, that was good. That was fun. You have a young daughter. You have another child on the way. At what point do you think you would say, all right, you know what? Let's all get together and go camping. We can reasonably spend a night in a tent. It's a great question. It's something I've tried to wrap my head around because, you know, as someone who's not the biggest camping fan to begin with, it's like, okay, is it really going to be that much fun when you introduce, you know, a one-year-old to the situation and you've got diapers to deal with and bottles? Like, is that actually going to be fun? I know there are people who do that. It does not sound like a lot of fun to me. So I have not done it yet with my daughter. I don't know when that time will come. Right. So this is the, if you're going to do camping with your kids, this is the question. Get them into it early. Hey, they've never known any different. They grew up with this. They've been in there since they were in diapers or shortly thereafter. And 
it's all good because they're just used to camping. This is something the family does. Or do you wait, which is what I did. We went camping for the first time this past weekend. Now, my daughter's with my parents earlier this summer. They had a night in a, in a trailer, in a camper. That's what they okay. did. Okay. So that was their first introduction. They seemed to have fun. I went tent. I went old school. We're getting in a tent. The whole family's in there. That's what's going down. We did it for the first time this weekend. Now, you, you have to know going in, you're not going to get the greatest sleep of your life. Like, you got to no, be real no. about the situation. And it kind of played out that way. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. They emerged with smiles on their faces. So to me, as a father, I feel like I have done the right thing here. That they want to do go. it again. I feel like I've done the right thing. A positive first experience. As you said, maybe the waiting paid off, right? Because it was a little easier, a little easier to make it fun. And now, uh, you know, you've got them interested in doing it again. Yeah, and that's without a campfire because of the campfire ban that's on right, right now. That always enhances your camping experience if you can have a fire. That's, that's one of the major perks to going camping, no doubt about it. Yeah, and it, I, I did get reminded of this, though, JB. And, again, I consider this successful. Everything you think is going to take a certain amount of time, you might as well at least multiply that by 50%, if not double it. Yes, that's a great point. That's like, a very, very good point. Yeah, It doesn't matter if it's setting up the tent. It doesn't matter if it's cooking your food, getting things cleaned up. Whatever it is when you're camping that you think is going to take a certain amount of time, just add to it. Like inflate the budget. Yeah. I mean, that's a good rule even when you're not camping, right? Just having having young kids. Just go ahead and, and build in some buffer zones there when you're timing things out. I'm happy that part of my weekend worked out. I'm sure Whitecaps fans are happy the part of their weekend that involved watching the game last night worked out because Vancouver, dominant side against Real Salt Lake, 4-1 win. The good vibes at home continue, Jamie. Yes, they absolutely do. And it was, uh, you know, a debut Debut match for their interim manager, of course, after they make the move letting Mark Dos Santos go after the loss in the Canadian Championships. And, man, they responded in a big way. You don't want to put it all, you know, oh, see see how well they're playing without Mark Dos Santos? That's not fair, but I'm sure supporters were really glad to see a statement game like that. Well, and that's the bigger story here to me. The dismissal of Mark Dos Santos and the curious timing of it. It comes on the heels of a loss to Pacific FC, which plays in the Canadian Premier League. And, hey, you're not supposed to lose to a CPL team in the Canadian competition. And now it's happened to the Whitecaps twice. They lost to Cavalry, which is the Calgary outfit, a couple of years ago. Now they lost to Pacific. As you and I both know, Jamie, hey, anything can happen on any given day. And this was over in Victoria. Looked like a great match. Seven goals yep. were scored, very competitive, and the home side went away happy, which for the Whitecaps was not a great thing. No, and I do think people are maybe overstating the gap between the two sides a little bit when they're talking about this, right? As if it's some sort of David and Goliath upset. Look, the Whitecaps should beat them. There's no doubt about that. But it's also not you know, unthinkable to me that they would lose. As you said, look, lots of strange things can happen in any given game. So was it then not curious to you? that Mark Dos Santos was dismissed almost immediately. This is a team that, despite what we might think of the roster and despite the way they might have cobbled together this nine-game unbeaten streak in MLS competition right now, because some of it along the way hasn't looked particularly pretty, they're all of a sudden back in this playoff race. This is a team that earlier this year, Jamie, had an eight-game winless streak and decided, nope, our manager's our manager, and we're sticking with him, and it's actually better than the results indicate. And now that the results are coming, despite that loss in the Canadian competition, Mark DeSantos is suddenly out. 
It feels to me like the club wanted to make a change and they were hoping to wait until the offseason to do it. And then this just expedited the process. Now, the question there is, okay, well, why didn't that stretch of really poor play earlier in the season expedite the process, right? Why didn't, if you were just waiting for an opportunity or waiting for kind of a crisis situation, why didn't you make the move then? But that's how it feels to me is, you know what? We were probably already going to do this when the season ended. Why don't we just get it out of the way and do it now after this disappointing result? Yeah, it was curious to me. And your your point may be a very logical one, but it seems just out of place. And I'm not sure what to think moving forward. In the here and now, hey, they're playing a lot better. The DP that they signed has been everything and more. Yep. Do you think Ryan Gold would be as impactful as he has been to this point? He's been fantastic. I mean, I was hoping he would be as a, as a Whitecap supporter, but, you know, they've brought in some high-profile players in the past, not quite at this level, that have not panned out in the same way. So there's always that uncertainty. But, no, he has been exceptional early in his run with the club. Yeah, and I don't know if I look at this as a playoff roster overall, but with the way he's impacted, with the fact that they've gotten some wind in their sails playing at home in BC Place, which is something they hadn't done prior to this over the last couple of years who knows who knows and it's mls like it's yes. it's such a strange <laughs> league and and we have watched forever that you can be the greatest team for the first 3 or 4 months of the season and it means absolutely nothing yeah, oh, for sure. It's uh, It can be a little bit hard to predict results week to week in MLS. Things can change in a hurry. And that's where the conversation, Peter Shad is going to join us here momentarily with BC Soccer now and obviously long associated with soccer in this province. Get a little analysis for him. That's where this is curious to me because there's the here and now and what might they be able to do down the stretch and could they find their way into the postseason? How much of a success story is that coupled with the where's the franchise headed? Like what does yeah. this mean? What's the new direction is it internal? Are they are they doing a global search as in the past? Peter Shad to shed a little more light on his opinion of what's happening. Peter, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? Oh, Scott, anytime I can hear your voice, it's always a good day. Hello, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for making time. We really appreciate it. The Mark DeSantos dismissal is extremely curious to me simply from a timing standpoint with the way the start of the season went and the way things were going right now. What was your reaction to that when you saw it? Well, I'm not surprised that uh, that he didn't see out the three years today. If you told me when he was signed in 2018 that he wouldn't see out his three years, I would have been shocked, actually, because I thought he was the perfect person for this job, given he's a young Canadian guy, he's passionate, energetic, he speaks multiple languages, and basically he has won at every single club he's been at uh, under budgetary constraints. So if there was ever a person who profiled perfectly for a job, it was Marco Santos. But as you could see, you know, throughout the years, and I know 2019 was difficult because he didn't have a lot to work with at the club. Last year was even more difficult because of the circumstances. And this was the year that he was given, you know, a lot of support, both in, you know, locating down to Salt Lake and being settled there. Uh, financial support, as many people know, the Whitecaps were CONCACAF's top spender in these last 18 months, which makes them the highest spender in MLS and any other league in the Confederation. So he was given the support. Um, but I think the final straw is when you when you lose to an opponent that has an $800,000 budget. And, and it, it should be said, too, that this was the third time the Whitecaps played a CPL opponent and they hadn't won a single one of those games under Mark Dos Santos. And I think 
from an organizational standpoint, I think they would have been very, very concerned that there's a perception that somehow, despite all the spending, despite all the support, that the Whitecaps are somehow viewed as not being able to beat a CPL opponent. That's very damaging. And, and I think that's the sort of final straw. It was interesting to hear his comments about trust with ownership being a two-way street, that, that he brought that out there. So clearly there was probably a little bit of skepticism about what was happening even going into this season. It's interesting to me because they backed him after the eight-game winless streak. The results started to come. Obviously, as you mentioned, there's been financial support given with some of the player signings, not the least of which is the addition of Ryan Gault, who's been fantastic for them so far. Are we led to believe that those weren't the call of Mark Dos Santos, that it was being made by Axel Schuster or someone else within the organization? Because when Dos Santos took the job, we were given the – the the press release that hey he's going to be in charge of all of that that's his call yeah and that transitioned with the arrival of axel schuster and you know mark himself to his credit said from day one this club needs to have a sporting director and it needs to have recruitment people that operate independently of the manager or support the manager because ideally if you're going to be self-sustaining then whether a manager comes or goes, the philosophy must remain and the profile of players must remain. And that has finally been put in place. And Axel Schuster is the man now who has the blueprint and then has the uh, recruitment support. Um, and so I think Mark Dos Santos would have always had a lot of say in what kind of players they need. And I, listen, I don't think you need to be a UEFA Pro License holder to look at this Whitecaps team and know that they have needed a creative playmaking type 10 to support uh, a striker like a Lucas Cavallini or Brian White or whoever it may be. They've been needing that from the very beginning. If that's the system they want to play, somebody who comes from deep, who links up and combines, and then uh, every once in a while pops in with a late run and scores goals as Ryan Gold has, has shown that he can do. So I think there was a balance of cooperation that Mark said, this is the profile of the player I think we need. And, and Axel Schuster's job is to, to go and procure those players. But at the same time, it's still Marco Santos is the chef that then blends all these recipes together. And he has to taste the recipe to make sure it, it feels right to him. And I guess at some point the decision was made that this recipe wasn't going <laughs> to attract enough people to the restaurant. <laughs> You know, Peter, as you said, when Mark Dos Santos arrived at the Whitecaps, there was so much excitement, and you outlined why his profile seemed perfect to go to work with the club. Why didn't it, it work out when, as you say, everything seemed like it was aligning really well for it to be a success here? You know, Jamie, I think it comes down to one major factor, and this is just my sense, but I don't think he connected with the senior players, uh, and I think that's a big problem when you have players in your roster like starting with Jordi Reyna, you know, a guy who's had international experience with Peru and had had a lot of troubles, mind you. Uh, then you've got Freddie Montero, Lucas Cavallini, Ali Adnan. Isn't it interesting that apart from Cavallini, all those players are gone? And if you don't have the respect and if you don't have the senior players on board, then that filters into the dressing room and causes awkwardness and uh, I think Mark for the most part finally got the team that he kind of wanted this year a much younger team and you know young teams take time to bed in in this league this is the most it's one of the most challenging leagues in the world to adapt to and I'm not making excuses here uh, you've got to adapt to time zones travel altitude climate 
totally different cultures from what people are used to perhaps in Europe or in South and Central America. It's a really challenging league. And I've heard this from so many players that didn't expect the level of athleticism, even if that didn't come with same, some, some of the same technical type standards that other leagues may have. But in, in terms of an athletic league, you know, MLS, there's some athletes in this league. So it does take adaptation. But you have to have a harmonious dressing room as well. And the one thing that I gleaned from that Pacific FC game was it just didn't seem as though the Whitecaps had the fight in them. And and that is a concerning thing, obviously, for the organization because they put a lot of value on the Canadian championships and wanting to win trophies and be amongst those that are in the discussion when we're talking about who hoists the Voyager's Cup. So I think whenever a professional sports team or a club releases a manager, you know, even if you're a supporter or you're a fan who liked the manager and liked the job he was doing, the question is always, okay, well, let's see who comes in and replaces him. And, you know, obviously I'm not asking for specific names or anything like that, but just in general, what, what, do you, what kind of profile do you think they should be looking at for the next manager of this team? Well, it's such an important uh, question, and it's such uh, an important aspect of a wider blueprint. Again, this is Axel Schuster's remit in trying to say, well, this is what we think the organization should be about in terms of a playing philosophy, and these are the profiles of the players that we'd like to have. And then ideally, you go and you find a manager who is already familiar playing in that style of system. Um, And Axel Schuster himself said that he didn't put too much priority on whether there was MLS experience or not. But um, as I just outlined, it is a very unique league. And it is interesting how some of these guys that have operated in this league for so long have had success. I mean, Bruce Arena is a great example. And, uh, you know, before then you had Siggy Schmidt and Brian Schmetzer, you know, the Seattle guy. And even Gio Zavarese, who was Mark's contemporary. This was a guy that Mark was beating in USL and NASL play rather regularly. They had a great rivalry. And yes, he has a Venezuelan background, but he's largely been an American guy who grew up in America. And he's done, I have to to say, he's done okay with the Portland Timbers. So I I think there is some pressure to look carefully at what's available from an MLS standpoint, because it, it really does seem that the coaches who are familiar with this league are able to navigate those waters, whereas we've seen a lot of coaches coming from foreign leagues that have struggled to adapt to, to Major League Soccer. So that's going to be a major consideration. But as Axel pointed out himself, he says, you know, we, we just can't rush into this and sort of and, and assign the first guy that comes along. Um, and and I, I agree with that. You have to make sure that uh, that the candidate is the right candidate for the job. And too many times when you make a change in season, you are basically recruiting from the best unemployment unemployed people that are available. And, uh, you know, they're lucky that they have Vani Sartini to be able to step in and bridge the gap for now. But, um, you know, th- this is the challenge, and I see it all over the world. This isn't just a challenge in Major League Soccer. How many times... Uh, you know, an organization or a club will fire a manager without a plan B, without a succession plan. And then all of a sudden, they're basically picking from the same old has-beens that are kicking around that have been around for a million years and are out of work, but are now pundits. And so they come back and they're, you know, they're now stepping into a job that that's probably too much for them. So uh, the, the important thing here is that the club understands the profile of how they want the team to play And that should be the most important thing when now going and trying to identify the successor. In conversation with Peter Shad today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. So if we look at the last two hires, 
Carl Robinson wasn't necessarily the first choice, but he ended up being the guy, and the results dictated, and because of expectation, that things went pretty well for Carl Robinson overall. Mark Dos Santos came in the way you described with a lot of fanfare. It seemed like the perfect fit. Things have changed for the Whitecaps in terms of market perception in the last couple of years for a bunch of different reasons. You and I both know that. Is this simply about substance? Go get the right person for the job, or is there a sell that has to occur here? Does there need to be some name value attached to that for this soccer community right now? Well, great question. Um, and you know, the danger of of putting too much impetus on uh, the marketing side of the hire uh, is that if it doesn't work out, and, and I'll give you a great example of that. Um, I really like Lucas Cavallini as a player, and in Canada's colors, he's done extremely well for the nation. I simply don't know if he was the right player to bring into the Whitecaps at the time, and there were certainly a lot of people in the Canadian soccer community that said, "Mm, not sure if that's the right pick for the Whitecaps, especially on the ticket. To me, that was very much a marketing hire. I mean, you think about the splash that they made with the tank outside BC Place, and, you know, Lucas has had a very tough time you know, succeeding at the level that I think we all expected and that the dollars dictate. So there's a danger in, in, in making a decision based on a marketing hire rather than the right person type hire. And you mentioned Carl Robinson's name and that he wasn't the first choice. But the one thing Carl Robinson did have was he had two years under Martin Rennie where he got to experience the, the lay of the land. But he also did come from Toronto FC and understood the MLS environment quite a bit. And so he was already quite equipped to take on an MLS job, even though he was younger and he was actually quite close to still his playing days, which, you know, was it was a difficult transition for him. But yes, you know, through 2015, there were some very good times. 2015 probably has been the pinnacle of this club and the excitement level and the engagement and the fanfare. That was probably the peak of it. And since then, it's been it's been difficult. So, yeah, I think that they have to get. A, a person who the players respect first and foremost, and I don't necessarily think that has to be an ex-player, but if you're going to bring in top professionals, I think they always do ask that question. Well, what did you do in your playing career? And that's something that if you look back on the past that Martin Rennie didn't really have and Marco Santos didn't have either. And although it's not the most important thing, the ability to relate to a footballer at the professional level and what they go through, and what their ego is like, and all those things. I think that is important. So it's not a fait accompli that Barry Robson returns in a managerial role. Peter Shad with us here for a few more minutes on Rintoul and Sermon. Now that's the marketing role, and that would be great for the sidelines. Oh, the arms waving. The yelling would have been amazing. David Osted. David Osted could be in that discussion, too. There you go. Absolutely. Hey, we're focused mainly on the white caps here and the direction going forward and speculation about that, both in the present season and, and beyond. We should give a cap tip here and a shout to Pacific FC for three victors over Vancouver. What does it mean for that team? What does it mean for the CPL? Oh, it means validation, uh, first and foremost. It means that you can you can stretch your dollar and accomplish things. You know, the CPL is trying to grow in a very prudent fashion. I don't think it's any secret that the salary budget for per team is about $800,000, which when you put that into perspective, and then that's less than the Whitecaps have paid some transfer fees, and it's less than some players earn annually in in Major League Soccer. Um, So validation is the first thing. But also, I'm very impressed that they have managed 
to put their on-field profile together in such a short period of time and become a very entertaining team to watch and a very successful team on the field. And that's happened in a relative, well, it's less than three years. And remember last year was completely abbreviated because of COVID. So they really haven't had a whole lot of time and they've gone through two coaches already in that time. And clearly they have made some very good personnel decisions and that's a deep team too. And another thing about the the game on Thursday is that Marco Bustos, who would have been gagging to play in that game, he wasn't even involved and neither was Ollie um, Bassett, who is, you know, was a pretty important pickup for them in the off season. So you have two players there that weren't even involved in that side and yet they still managed to pull off a great win. So from that standpoint, it's a wonderful moment. Now, I was a bit sad to see yesterday that uh, they put together another entertaining performance at West Hill Stadium, winning 3-2 over Valor, but with a shadow of the crowd that was there. And to me, that's their biggest challenge. And although the win over the Whitecaps you'd think would help, uh, they still have a lot of work to do off the field there to engage that community because it's a very interesting community, very soccer um, savvy community loved loved my time in the lower island and in victoria and you could really feel the attachment to the game there and there's a long history of attachment to the game but it's always a challenge when you're you're putting a team in the suburbs and you know west hill or the starlight stadium is in langford and the western communities and you know there's there's always been this challenge and mls learned this as well that when you put stadiums in suburban areas or not in downtown cores it's difficult because people want to make a day of it. They want to have, you know, entertainment around them as well as nightlife before and after games. And that's something they're going to have to work on is to try to, to lessen the barriers for people to come from Victoria itself to watch those games, but also to engage Langford, which is one of the fastest growing communities in Canada, frankly, to, to tap into the people that live right next them and try to get those people coming to the game so from an on-field perspective fantastic validating win what a night a really special night a, a romantic night for canadian soccer if you're not on the losing end of it um, but still work to do uh in trying to get that stadium to be full because it, it should be full it deserves to be full well and peter looking at the cpl as a whole i mean i think you're absolutely right that the on the field product in, in, in such a short time has been very very impressive but i guess you know even beyond the specific uh, difficulties the Pacific FC must ha- might have, that's always going to be the problem. And it, it looks like they've got, in the league as a whole, they've got the on-the-field product sorted out. But the business side and the fan engagement side, you know, is always going to be a little bit more of a struggle, as you say. It is, yeah. And that's it's a massive struggle. And you need the right people to, to guide that particular, you know, aspect of the business. And I think it's something that will certainly be addressed over the next little while. And, you know, the, the league has you know, a lot of aggressive plans for growth and wanting to expand, but you have to expand into the right markets and you have to expand with the right groups and the right stadium locations and all those kind of things. So, you know, those are challenges that are coming. But as you mentioned, the the on-field part of it has actually been quite shocking for me. Uh, what the league is getting out of the players, considering that, you know, it is a limited salary and that is an issue that uh, will also, I think, rear its head here over the next few years because the players you know, themselves are, are trying to mobilize here and make sure that, that what they're getting is fair. Um, but that speaks to the level of talent in Canada that is still there and untapped, and particularly players in the 17 to 20-year-old age, which is the ones they should be going after. And it just supports this theory that if you give a player a chance to play with and against professional adults, that 
sometimes they rise to the occasion. And, uh, and I should also say that, you know, some of the recruitment they've done from foreign leagues on, on smaller budgets has actually been pretty good as well. So yeah, we, we really need a domestic league. You guys, we've got to have sovereignty over our game. We can't always rely on the Americans to try to help steer our path as a country. We have to have this league. It must succeed and flourish and hopefully grow and, and hopefully it learns some of the lessons that Major League Soccer learned back in 1996 and onward. Well, we need to make our Canadian women the decision makers then at the top because they are leading, my friend. That's a discussion for a different day, as is Canada soccer, where it goes. I guess we'll have to leave Tales from the Empire Landmark till next time as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I would love to have some old Sheraton Landmark uh, stories, Scott. But, yes, there's only so much time in a day, and I'm glad that you gave me as much as you did here. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right, guys. That is Peter Shad now with BC Soccer, longtime fixture in the soccer community here. And there's lots to talk about. And Jamie, we'll talk a little soccer later in this week because Canada will open yep. its CONCACAF qualifying, its World Cup qualifying in this final round. Round it hasn't been in since the late 90s on Thursday against Honduras in Toronto. That is extremely, extremely exciting. I can't wait. I, I was saying last week with Karen how pumped I was when they released the squad. And, you know, you know the names and the big names that are going to be on it, but it's still really exciting to see them all listed. Everyone's going to be there. Everyone's healthy. I cannot wait for the final stage of qualifying to get going. Final stage of this show gets going next. It's not a name I thought we'd be talking about this summer, at least not the way we're talking about it. How did somebody who a lot of people considered the facepalm emoji of the NBA become one of our favorite things? He's that right now. We'll tell you who next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. One final segment on the Monday edition of Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. A lot of love for Peter Shad. Not surprised by that. Good conversation. We could have kept that one going for quite some time. Jamie, I didn't think we'd be talking about J.R. Smith in late <laughs> August of 2021. Did you? Mm, probably not. No. What do you think J.R. Smith is best remembered for? Uh, unfortunately, I think it is for the, of course, infamous play in, what was it, the 2018 uh, NBA Finals, right? Game one where he grabs the rebound, has a chance to go up for the winning layup, doesn't realize the score is tie, so he dribbles it out. And then, of course, the famous picture of LeBron letting him hear it after that decision played out and J.R. Smith kind of reacting uh, just in, in bewilderment like, like all of us. J.R. Smith had a good NBA career. J.R. Smith was a yep. very good player. Not top-tier star, but J.R. Smith was a very good player. Somewhat erratic over the course of his career, I think we can agree. But he was a really good player in the association. Oh, 100%. He hung around for a long time, too. Carved out a really nice career for himself. He did, and yet the public perception of him as a player, it was pretty mixed, talented, temperamental is perhaps not the the right word to use, but needed to be in the right situation. At least that's the perception. Hey, he's got to be with a guy like LeBron, a guy who can help J.R. Smith keep his emotions in check during the course of a game because when he harnesses that, boy, is he effective. Yeah, and remember, this is a guy who came straight out of high school to the NBA, mm -hmm. right? He was one of the last players who was able to do that before they cha changed the rules. So the talent was obviously immense, right? And, and you're right. I think there was a perception that, okay, he's incredibly talented, but maybe mentally he can't quite put it together. He can't stay consistent enough to put it together. He, he's just not reaching his ceiling, and that's something that you know can be very frustrating for fans. But the talent certainly never an issue with J.R. Smith. So the reason J.R. Smith has burst 
back into our consciousness as sports fans because a lot of guys, they leave the association, they go do what they're going to do, and we focus on the next wave and the new stars, and we're caught up with what's going on. Not everybody gets followed afterwards. J.R. Smith has gone back to school, and he's a part of a collegiate golf team, and that's where he first burst onto the scene again here in the last couple of weeks. And yeah, it's it was you know it first kind of broke. Okay, is he going to be able to get eligibility because he never enrolled at a college before or university? He was able to get eligibility, and he's doing it. He is on the golf team. So that's a part of it. But what's been far more compelling is J.R. Smith tweeting about his school experience the golfing part that fits into what we talk about all the time well how's he gonna do and we've seen professional athletes try to make their way onto the tour tony romo is he's playing in this pga event steph curry's gonna play in this event what could they do jr smith's on a collegiate team so people are gonna follow that aspect of it i had no idea that i would be as compelled and as many people would be as compelled by what he's tweeting about the actual work he has to put in trying to go to college and yeah, what the work he's putting in, the the learning he's done, you know, what he's learning in his classes, the successes, but also the the struggles. And like, ah man, you know, I didn't do I didn't do as well as I wanted at this. That's something I'm going to have to get better at. Yeah, and it's brought up a bigger conversation, at least it has in my opinion. J.R. Smith's 35 years old and he's going back to school. He's not the first, won't be the last. There are people there are people listening in our audience right now, Jamie, that have gone back to school at what is considered a later stage of life. But as you mentioned, he didn't go to college before, broke into the NBA as a guy right out of high school, so he hasn't gone through this before. And he's been really open and very real about the fact that this has not been easy so far. And some of the things he's tweeted have have resonated with a lot of people. Like, he tweeted something that, again, got a lot of support from people where he just said, I'm so disappointed in myself this first week, man. Like, he's detailed his struggles with this transition, that it isn't easy, and despite the fact, and he hasn't alluded to this, but we all know, he's got financial resources available to him that right. most of us will never realize. This isn't easy for him. Yeah, it's a it's a really challenging transition, and just the, the lifestyle and the schedule and the rhythm, all of it would be completely different from what he's used to, right? And and it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people, even if you don't go back later in life, right? If you just follow a fairly typical route and you go straight from high school to post-secondary, you move away, that can be a really challenging transition. And, you know, it's tempting to say, oh, it's just because you're young or whatever it is, it's your first time away from home. But I think it's interesting to see it from the lens of somebody, as you say, who does have all of these extra resources, who's older, who's been around the block, it can still be a very challenging transition. So Jenna Lane of ESPN, this is something J.R. Smith retweeted. I've been compelled by his timeline. He retweeted this. She put out today, it isn't talked about enough, but athletes often go through a really dark period when they retire. The death of a dream, but also the fear of having to start over and be a beginner again when you've known one thing your whole life. That's why J.R. Smith's tweets matter so much. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And it's not talked about very often because, hey, what problems could this guy have? He's made so much money and doesn't need to work again. But most people still need something to do, Jamie. Yeah. And most people who are geared the way professional athletes are to work as hard as they did to get to the highest level of their sport, their profession on the planet, they are going to try to excel at something else. They need to pour their energy into something. And it's not just I'm going to put my feet up and, and chill for the rest of my life. And quite often... That first thing, maybe the next thing, it doesn't go as easy as they think it's going to go. 
yeah, it can be a little harder for people who are, as you say, you know, inherently used to being among the very, very best at what they do in the world. And the financial argument is interesting because it always comes up, right? Like, ah, who cares? You've made X amount of millions in your career. Like, why are you bellyaching about anything? I mean, first of all, you know, as we know, a lot of guys get into bad financial positions despite making those kinds of salaries. And all of a sudden that money, you know, you go look at their career earnings and what they actually have available to them is an awful lot less than that. And, you know, okay, where do you put the blame for that? That's a different discussion. But we're not always talking about people that have infinite financial resources here. But, yeah, even if you do have those kinds of financial resources, you still have to find something meaningful in your life to occupy your time. And that's a lot easier said than done. And I want to follow up on this story tomorrow or in the coming days and talk to some athletes that have gone through the transition. And maybe it wasn't easy, and, and hopefully they've – they found their groove now and hope J.R. Smith finds his groove in school or whatever it is he wants to pursue in this or, or beyond this year. But it's also interesting to see the flip in public sentiment because when athletes struggle in their particular sports, and you know this as a fan out there, you know this as a Canucks fan or a Seahawks fan or whatever you're a fan of, when your player struggles, it's pretty easy to get critical. And the athlete might give you reasons why. Hey, here's why it's tough for me right now, or it's not going particularly well. And that doesn't wash with a lot of fans. What's the constant response? Hey, you're getting paid a lot of money. Figure it out. You got to be better than this. You're getting paid a whole bunch of money. That's not been the reaction to J.R. Smith talking about his struggles. It's not been like, hey, suck it up. Everybody has to go to college. It's been quite different. It's been, you're going to get through this. Okay, I got your back on this. Keep grinding we we've all had to make a transition at some point you're going to be okay there's been so much more support for this than there would have been for jr smith struggling on the basketball yeah court. yeah or, or there, then there was for you know in moments when he was struggling in the nba on the basketball court i think that's a fascinating point and it's all about the context of the struggles right because you know, you, we, we look at players in the NBA, the NHL, whatever, and we just think of them almost as, okay, you're so physically talented. Of course you're in the NHL. Of course you're in the NBA. And if you're not living up to expectations or you're struggling, it's 100% on you. And it's just because you're not working hard enough. But even the guys who are in those leagues and going through tough, tough stretches, you know, they've had to work incredibly hard to get there. And I think maybe one of the differences in this scenario is – we don't look at J.R. Smith and say, you know, of course you're going to nail university. And that's not, I'm not saying because we think he's stupid or anything like that. It's just he's in a different category than he is when it comes to the NBA, and you can just see what he does on the court and know how much talent he has, if that makes sense. I've got a lot of time for this because J.R. Smith, I hope, has more money than he'll ever know what to do with and could do anything. And he doesn't have to do it in the public spotlight, but this is what he chooses to do. And he knows that it's not going to be particularly easy, and he's documenting the fact that it's going to not be particularly easy. I heard it was said in the last week or in the last couple of weeks, the only way you're going to be good at something is if you're willing to be bad at it. If you're willing to have that attitude that this might not work, but I'm willing to put myself out there and I'm willing to take the chance. I got a lot of time for him doing that. Yeah, I completely agree. And as you said, you know, not only is he doing it in private, but he's kind of putting it out there for everyone to see. He's putting that struggle out there. And I think there will a lot of, be a lot of people who look at it and say, yeah, hey, I can do that too. I can try something new. I can take on a new challenge. There's always more reasons not to try, aren't there? Like Amanda oh, Ruler yeah. came on this. She was our first guest to the program today, and she was excellent. And if you missed that interview, we're having some technical difficulties with the radio portion. Our streaming app, it was all going, but we had some technical 
issues with the signal 650. And so people may have missed that interview. If you missed it, sportsnet.ca slash 650. Amanda Ruler is an assistant coach. She's the running backs coach at McMaster University. It's her first job as a paid coach for a football team. And she is someone in her story, Jamie, that when we went through it with her, she was a CIS sprinter, but she played football. She tried. She's tried a lot of different things, and not each one of them, most of them haven't quite stuck, but she continues to have an appetite to try something else. And whether it works or it doesn't, she's got that desire to move forward and to hell with it. If it works or it doesn't, I'm going to put everything I have into it. Yeah, and you get the sense that, you know, as you say, even from all those experiences, even if that turns out not to be the right thing at that time, she's able to take some element, some lesson from the experience and just, okay, that now what, what do I do with this bit of experience, right? What do I do with this bit of knowledge that I gained? How do I use that to find another opportunity that I'm excited about? And it's great to see her. You know, you heard how passionate she was about the coaching job, about the work of coaching and her goal is to break through and be coaching on a CFL sideline. It was really great to hear that passion, but it was also interesting to hear that it wasn't just a straight line for her, right? Where it was like, okay, you know, I played some football. Now I'm going to be a football coach. There was a lot of stops in between, but they all add up and give her that extra bit of knowledge and experience that she uses in her current role too. Right. And Hey, maybe you could be on the Olympic bobsled team or a skeleton and it didn't work out probably as well as she had hoped or those who recruited her into it. She did well, just not to the Olympic level, but that didn't stop her from pursuing other things. The WWE comes calling and says, we'd like you to try out. I've never done this before, but let's go. Why not? Right. And there's a lot, there's a lot of people out there among us and Hey, I'm sure I've been guilty of this and you probably have at your time as well. Jamie, you've been offered an opportunity and you went, I'm probably not going to be great at that. So thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, right. Rather than, you know, okay, hey, if they think I'm good enough, I'll figure it out as I go, right? They think I can do this. They see something there. Let's do it. Let's try to make a go of it. I would love to see a J.R. Smith-type documentary about his return to college. It's a very cool story, says at Basketball Phil, regular tweeter and listener of the program. Yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see what that looks like. I agree. It's it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, when the actual when the competition starts, how that goes for him, how he does. I mean, apparently he's a fantastic golfer, and it's actually funny, you know. Obviously, if he's playing at the NCAA level, you got to have a certain amount of talent. But it's actually funny because when you think J.R. Smith, you don't necessarily immediately think golf, right? And apparently, he was able to hustle a lot of people in the NBA who also made that assumption, right? You go out in the golf course. Uh, on, a, on a day off with J.R. Smith, and you don't think he's going to be out there as a scratch golfer. Apparently, he was able to win a lot of money off some people around the NBA by playing on that exact instinct. Yeah, it would be fun. I'm pretty compelled by a lot of those stories right now. We're, we talked about Malice in the Palace the last time you and I were on together, and both of us watched that. We're getting a lot more of these first-person, hey, I'm going to tell you my account of this. It's it, That doesn't mean that it's... It's unbiased. In fact, it comes replete with bias, but yep. that's okay. We want to hear from those who are at the center of it and get their views on it, not necessarily have have them pass judgment as a moral authority on what happened, but I'm going to tell it like it was from my perspective. Yeah, exactly. That's it's exactly right. Hearing from the people involved who are closest to the situation, what insight they have. I hope we have a camera behind the scenes of the Montreal Canadiens. I, we're not going to get a <laughs> with we're not going to get a resolution. But what a wild offseason! We talked about it earlier with Andrew Berkshire as well. He was on with us last hour. There's a lot to get into, and there's some good, and there's a bunch of bad, and there's this current situation as well. How about having a camera behind those four walls? 
Oh man. And just imagine the, the workout his phone is getting right. Like calling. I mean, for a time when the rest of the NHL is in kind of, okay, we're just running out the clock until training camp starts. And, you know, obviously there's still some big name RFAs on the market. Obviously here in Vancouver, we know that Jack Eichel is still waiting to be traded. That's a big deal. But by and large, the activity has all completely died down. Mark Bergevin must just be lighting up the phones right now, calling every general manager to one say, okay, first of all, if we have a first and a third all of a sudden from Carolina, can we make a deal? Hey, that center that's playing on your second line right now, is that something you'd be interested in, right? He's calling everyone asking that question. And also, if we need to start shed some salary cap in a hurry, are you interested in helping us do that? Because those are really the two scenarios they have to work through. And the legwork that they're going to be putting in this week must just be off the charts. What a wild 2021 it has been for that franchise. Look at what they did in the offseason, and hey, what's Montreal going to be? And they made the big trade for Josh Anderson, and they brought in Edmondson. We all know about Toffoli here, and well, how's this going to work out? And then they started the season like they were world beaters, only to crash back down. They went through COVID. They make an unprecedented run based on where they were to a Stanley Cup final and ultimately succumb to the Tampa Bay Lightning, and they've got all that goodwill. And then they get David Savard, and oh, by the way, now we're going to draft Logan Mayu, and now we might lose Jesperi Kakiemi. What a complex eight months it has been for this franchise. It has, and you think of, as you said, kind of from the lows of firing Claude Julien, and are we even going to be able to make the playoffs, to the Stanley Cup Finals, and now all of a sudden you turn around, and if this if they don't navigate the Kakiemi situation really smartly, this season could end up being... Pretty ugly, right? I mean, we heard from Andrew Berkshire when we talked to him out in Montreal. Their center depth is a major, major issue. They need either Kakanyemi or someone at least as good, if not better, that they acquire with that first and third round pick to be playing center for them because otherwise they just don't have the pieces there. And otherwise it could go really, really south really, really fast. Isn't it crazy? What was the one thing we talked about in that series with Vegas? Well, I'll tell you where they have an advantage, down the middle. Like, yeah. you could talk all you want about Vegas, and they played in the division in Colorado, and boy, they got rid of the avalanche. But Vegas still searching for center depth, and Montreal, that's where they definitely have an advantage. And Carey Price, is he going to outduel Mark Andre Fleury? And all of a sudden, we're talking about center depth in Montreal. Yeah, it's all of a sudden, it could be Nick Suzuki and question marks. Just a whole lot of question marks after that if you don't have that hole filled. Should be a fun week from that perspective. It started off great. Jamie, thanks for jumping in today. I'm guessing you're going to be here tomorrow, but I'm not sure at this point. You are the most consistent piece of the show. And for those who did not know, he went full Shohei Otani today. Jamie produced this program today, and he was a... I'm not going to say guest host. You're just the regular host of this show. I mean, just, <laughs> I've just been doing it long enough. I mean, I, I almost forgot how to produce a show when I was leading <laughs> up on the weekend. I was like, wait, what am I doing here again? But I managed to pull it together. Well, I appreciate you having me fill in as a host this week. <laughs> You're welcome, Scotty. You're welcome. That was really nice of you. Thank you very much for the call. Jamie will be here tomorrow, maybe in both roles, maybe in one, but he will be here. Big ups back at Mission Control to Greg Ballack as well excellent stuff as always as we as we've reunited three quarters of our regular team here on Rintoul and Sermon we'll hope to make it complete tomorrow or and not tomorrow at some point later this week we're going to turn you over to Bick and the boss now plenty to get into we'd encourage you to continue to text 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox you can always get in during the course of the show enjoy Bick and the boss next right here on your home of Canucks hockey Sportsnet 650